Turn your Bibles to the third chapter of Luke this morning. Luke chapter 3, you can see on the screen that we're going to be talking about John the Baptist today. We're continuing this series on the greatest individual that ever lived. Of course, that's referring to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And in Luke chapter 3, we meet his campaign manager, his forerunner, the herald, the preparer, the one who came to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah, and his name, John the Baptizer, or John the Baptist as we refer to him more often. We've already talked a little bit about John uh, back around Christmas time. We've talked about how his birth was announced to Zacharias while he was serving at the temple. An angel came and said, your prayers have been heard. You and your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son. And Zacharias just couldn't hardly believe that. In fact, because of his lack of faith in what the angel said, the angel said, because you haven't believed me, you're not going to be able to talk until after the child has been born. And sure enough, when Zacharias came out and was supposed to pronounce a blessing on the people, he couldn't do it. Had to make signs and signals to them, and they realized that something had taken place in the temple. But then Elizabeth conceives, and of course, about nine months later, she gives birth to a son. And the people there are wanting to call him uh, Zacharias, basically, after, after his father. And she said, no, his name is John. They said, well, nobody in your family has that name. So they make signs and signals to Zacharias, who calls in some way for a writing tablet and writes on it, his name is John. And immediately his tongue was loosed and he could speak and praise God. And the people knew that this child would be something special. And then scholars are, are not, they're not sure, but we really don't have much mentioned after that about Zacharias and Elizabeth. And so they wonder if they died while John was basically a child. Because from there on out, where is John as far as we know? In the desert. Out in the wilderness, that's right. And we don't read anything more about his parents. And so today we come to the beginning of John's appointed ministry. This is where John begins to fulfill God's plan for his life. Now the prophet Malachi, over 400 years before this, has said that Elijah would come before that great and terrible day of the Lord. Jesus would later say that if you're willing to understand it, John the Baptist was the Elijah that was prophesied. And so John comes to begin his ministry, and Luke sets the stage by specifically telling us when this all took place. Notice the first two verses of Luke 3. Now in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod was tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip was tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was tetrarch of Abilene, and the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. Boy, here's one time where it's not once upon a time, right? I mean, Luke nails this narrative into his, an, a historical context, a very precise point 
in time, a period of history here. And he just outdoes himself. He lists no less than seven rulers here in this chronological roll call. Number one, he talks about Tiberius Caesar. He followed Caesar Augustus. Remember anything that Caesar Augustus did? Well, he issued a decree that the entire world would be taxed. That's what brought Joseph and Mary to Bethlehem and where Jesus would be born. But he was succeeded by Tiberius Caesar. Augustus died on August the 19th of AD 14. Now if Tiberius immediately took power, this would place this particular narrative in Luke 3 between AD 28 and 29, which fits perfectly with the time when Jesus would come on the scene. He also mentions Herod. This is Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great's the one that had all the children killed. But Herod Antipas ruled in Galilee as Tetrarch from 4 BC to AD 39. So he ruled Galilee and Perea. He mentions Philip here, which was Herod Antipas' brother. So again, another son of Herod the Great. He ruled Ituria and Trachonitis northeast of Palestine from 4 B.C. to about A.D. 33. You notice this title, Tetrarch. A tetrarch is a ruler over a fourth of an area, a fourth of a country, a fourth of a region. He mentions Lysanias as a tetrarch of Abilene. And we don't know anything else about him except that. That's it. He mentions Pilate, Pontius Pilate who ruled as governor of Judea from A.D. 26 through 36. We meet him during the trials of Jesus, don't we? This is the one who called for a basin of waters and washed his hands and said, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and then he turned Jesus over to be crucified. That, Pontius Pilate, is mentioned here. He mentions Annas. He was the recognized high priest among the Jews. According to Jewish law, when a man was appointed as high priest, you carried that position till when? Till death, absolutely. But Annas was a pretty strong-willed individual, and the Romans who were in control could not manipulate him the way they wanted, so they designated or appointed as the official high priest his son-in-law, Caiaphas, because Caiaphas could be manipulated by the Romans to do what they wanted him to do. But the Jewish people, for the most part, still looked to Annas as their high priest for leadership. So Luke makes sure that we know this account of the life of Jesus and of John the Baptist here is set in a particular time in history. This is an historical account. And folks, you can trust your Bible for its history. It's accurate. And there's no doubt about that. You can trust it for its history just as you can trust it for your salvation and your eternity. So now let's go to verses 3 and following. He, John, came into all the district around the Jordan preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. 
Every ravine shall be filled up. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough road smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. There are over 330 prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. And with the coming of John, these messianic prophecies began to fall into place. One by one by one, releasing the mystery of God, which had been hidden for ages past, as the scripture says, that mystery was the good news of Jesus Christ. And it was John's job to introduce the Messiah to the people, to prepare the people for the coming of the Messiah. He did that through his ministry there along the banks of the Jordan River near Bethany and people from all over the region would come to him and just stream out there to hear him. His message was simple but yet profound. The kingdom of God is coming. It's near. Get ready for it. And in order to personally prepare for this coming kingdom, people needed to repent and be baptized because John's baptism was one of repentance for the remission of sin. It was a precursor to Christian baptism. Then we read this quote here. In your Bibles, you might see verses 4 and 5 and 6 in all caps. That's an Old Testament quotation from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. It's figurative language that describes the preparation that would be made for an important king or dignitary who would come to visit. When it was known that such a person, a king or important dignitary, was coming to to visit a, a place, they would literally send out construction crews that would go out and prepare the road. They would clear rocks off the road. They would straighten curves. They would fill in the potholes. And John did that for Jesus through his preaching. Prepared the people for the coming of a king. He introduced a lot of messianic concepts as well as a baptism of repentance that would prepare the hearts and the minds of the people to follow Jesus. Everything John did was to point to Jesus. Luke doesn't tell us what John looked like, but Matthew and Mark do. They said that he wore a camel hair coat cinched up by a leather belt. They tell us what he ate. His diet was of locusts and wild honey, which does not sound all that appetizing to me. How about you? How many of you have had locusts to eat? Okay. Huh? Maybe with chocolate. All right. How many of you have eaten grasshoppers? Okay, those grasshoppers and locusts are kind of similar, you might think. So, uh, (laughs) but not for me, all right? Now, John probably did not appear as strange to the people as what he might seem to us, all right? Uh, This was very much what Elijah the prophet would have appeared as because he had uh, uh, some kind of outer garment that way and probably looked what we might consider as a mountain man, kind of a rough, rugged-looking individual. Now, in verses 7 through 14, 
we have a glimpse of his preaching. John therefore began saying to the multitudes who were going out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? That's a good way to draw an audience. Right? I mean, just imagine you folks coming in here and me getting right in your face and saying, why are you brood of vipers here? I don't know if you'd come back next week or not, all right? Uh, Jeanette might not think that would be a good sermon. So, okay. But that, now he says that here, but again, when you compare the accounts, okay, if you look at Matthew's account of this same event, it says Jesus, or John, John noticed the Pharisees and the Sadducees that had come out to be baptized of John. And he said to them, you brood of vipers. This phrase here is directed at the religious leaders. That's one of the advantages of comparing the parallel accounts. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore bring forth fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that God's able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. And also... The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the multitudes were questioning him, saying, Then what shall we do? And he would answer and say to them, Let the man who has two tunics share with him who has none. Let him who has food do likewise. And some tax gatherers also came to be baptized. And they said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to them, Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. And some soldiers were questioning him, saying, And what about us? What shall we do? And he said to them, Do not take money from anyone by force, or accuse anyone falsely, and be content with your wages. So John's preaching was both practical and penetrating. And his words were probably very disturbing to the Pharisees and Sadducees when he called them a brood of vipers, but Jesus called them the same thing later on. John's boldness here, I think, is so characteristic of some of the Old Testament prophets, particularly like Elijah. And we know the crowds came out to be baptized by John, but did these Pharisees and Sadducees come out to be baptized by him? Well, some, no. Some, yeah. I think there were some of them that came out to interrogate John concerning his authority to baptize. Some of them may have been sincere, but I think most of them just pretended sincerity for the sake of the crowds. You remember later on when, Jesus, when they asked Jesus a question, and Jesus said, I'll answer your question with a question. John's baptism, where was it from? Was it from heaven or from men? And they've got to stop and think, well, if we say that it was from heaven, then he's going to ask us, then why weren't you baptized? And if we say it's from men, well, all the people consider John a prophet, and they'll look down on us. So they said, we don't know. <laughs> Jesus said, then I'm not going to answer your question either. But John's baptism, some came out 
probably to be baptized, maybe sincerely. Some of them totally rejected John's baptism, wasn't baptized at all. I mean, I'm talking here about the religious leaders. And some of those religious leaders probably were coming to be baptized, but doing it for the wrong motives. Doing it to look good in the eyes of the people. And John saw right through them, and he called them out. So the greatest majority of the Pharisees and Sadducees, I think, refused to submit to his baptism. Now, they were right in coming out there to be baptized, and those maybe that, that were, wanted to be baptized probably had the wrong motives. What they needed was repentance. Repentance. That's what John called for, a repentance that produced the appropriate fruit. He says, bring forth fruits worthy of repentance. That word repentance literally means a change of mind. And in the Greek language, the mind controlled the will as well as the thoughts. The mind controlled both the thoughts and the behavior of a person. And just like faith without works is dead, so repentance without an appropriate change in behavior is dead as well. And so when it comes to repentance, you've got to ask yourself, am I moving towards the nature of God or away from it? The religious leaders of John's day and Jesus' day were convinced that their Jewish heritage assured them of a position with God. But John saw, saw through that right away and blew that way of thinking right out of the water. He warns them here about trusting their heritage above true repentance. Yeah, they may be real flesh and blood descendants of Abraham, but that didn't necessarily make them sons of Abraham. In the Jewish culture, the, the son was to represent the character of the father. And many of the Jews thought their lineage and their position would give them favor with God. You know, the old adage, it's not what you know, it's who you know. But John corrected that misunderstanding before they could even get it out of their mouths. And listen, folks, we're not justified. Well, let me put it this way. We are justified before God because of our relationship with Him, not with our ancestors. In other words, the faith of your parents or grandparents or whoever, their faith will not save you. It must be your own faith. You've got to personalize it. John goes on to show that repentance is all the more urgent in light of the imminent judgment. He said, the axe has already been laid at the root of the tree. It's ready for action. It'll chop down any tree that does not produce appropriate fruit, and it'll be burnt. Jesus would later say the same thing. Folks, there will be a future judgment day for every individual. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, judgment. Judgment. But God was also about to bring judgment on the Jewish nation at the hands of the Romans. And that judgment would climax with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. So repentance, repentance is of the utmost importance when it comes to having a proper relationship with God. Folks, you can't become a Christian unless you know how to repent. And you can't remain a Christian unless you know how to repent. So, the crowd asked the question, then what should we do? Three groups 
come to John asking this same question. The Jewish crowd, the tax collectors, and the soldiers. Their question sounds very similar to the one that was asked by the crowd on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, verse 36 and 37. When Peter had convinced them they had murdered the Messiah, they were seared in their conscience and said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? That's the question being asked here. So John first responds to the question of the crowd, and he says, The man with two tunics should share with him that has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Now what was a tunic? A tunic was the undergarment that you would wear inside your cloak or inside your outer garment. Everyone needed a tunic. But you could get along okay without an extra one, as long as you had one. And John here is saying, if we have more than we need, we should share with a person who has less than they need. Talking here just about basic benevolence. Food and clothes are necessities. How can we be lovers of God and sit idly by if our fellow man lacks the basic needs of life? How did James put it? If your brother comes to you in need of clothing or daily food and you say to him, go your way, be warm and be filled, but you don't give him what's necessary, what good is that? Even so, faith without works is dead, being by itself. Yeah, second chapter of James. So he says to share with those that are in need. Then he talks to the tax collectors. Now along with harlots and murderers, these people were the most despised people in Israel, considered traitors because they worked with Rome. Under the Roman system of taxation, a particular province would be sold to the highest bidder. These bidders that won those provinces were called chief tax collectors like Zacchaeus was. They promised the emperor they would collect so much tax from a certain area. Then they would hire their underlings to actually go out and collect the taxes from individuals. The chief tax collectors made their living by collecting more than what they had to send to Rome. And the more they collected, the more they gained. The excess was all profit. Likewise, the underlings made their living by collecting more than the chief tax collector asked. So thus, the more abusive that you were, the richer you got. And in addition, their work would often render them ceremonially unclean, and so they were not only hated, but most times they were excluded from Jewish society. And these tax collectors come to be baptized of John and said, what should we do? And John says... Collect no more than what you've been ordered to. How do you think that message went over? And I wonder if there were some that actually followed John's teaching or if they thought, well, I can't live that way. It makes you wonder. And then finally, the soldiers that come are told not to rob people. These were probably Roman soldiers. And because of their position, they could and did extort money by threatening people. And John tells them, be satisfied with your wages. The wage of a Roman soldier was about 225 denarii a year. A denarii, a denarius was a day's wage for a common laborer. 
And also the soldiers' food and clothing and arms and weapons were all deducted from their salary. And so even though they received Roman citizenship upon their retirement, their paychecks were pretty slim. So it's understandable why they wouldn't be satisfied with their wages. And they would force people to give them money or extort people, money from people, and, and uh, don't accuse anyone falsely. They might do that and say, you're going to get in trouble because of what I'm going to tell them unless you pay me X amount of money. I mean, all different ways these Roman soldiers could try to get money from people. And John says, that's no excuse to rob someone just to be unsatisfied with your wages. Now notice verses 15 through 18. While the people were in a state of expectation and all were wondering in their hearts about John as to whether he might be the Christ, John answered and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I'm not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And his winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations also, he preached the gospel to the people. So these people that were coming to hear John were not only wondering if John was the Messiah, they were hoping that he was, wishing that he was the promised Messiah. They'd been waiting for hundreds of years for the Messiah. Was John the one they'd been waiting for? Well, no, he wasn't. John very quickly points to someone else that would come after him. He was not the Messiah. He was just the forerunner, the one preparing people for the one to come. And as wonderful as his baptism was, the Messiah's would be much more powerful. In John's day, the expectation of the Messiah had reached an all-time high. I mean, it was at a fever pitch. Considering the Roman occupation, the Jews were hoping for a militaristic Messiah that would be king and help overthrow the Romans. And John's popularity had the potential of causing such an uprising. Considering the 400 years of silence from God, they were hoping for a Messiah who would also be a prophet. And John certainly seemed to fit the bill on that as well. The Jewish people were living in poor social conditions while the Herods were living in great luxury and wealth. And so the Jews were hoping for a Messiah that would bring them financial prosperity. But John's lifestyle in the desert didn't seem to fit that. But hey, two out of three ain't bad, right? So they're hoping that he is the Messiah, but John wasn't. He wasn't the Christ. In fact, he said, I don't even feel worthy to stoop down and untie his shoe. In other words, John didn't feel fit to serve Jesus in the most menial task of a slave. John knew he wasn't the Messiah, and his baptism proved it. He could only baptize with water. The Messiah's baptism would be with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit is not Christian baptism as we know it. It's not. 
The baptism of the Holy Spirit is identified twice in the New Testament. On the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the first four verses, and in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 11. And both times it was at the birth of a new church, the Jewish and the Gentile. Both times it proved that God had accepted these people, and both times it was accompanied by the gift of tongues, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But the second baptism of Jesus was with fire. And whereas the baptism of the Holy Spirit is a good thing, the baptism of fire is a bad thing. Essentially, it's judgment. It's condemnation. And the context describes it as a farmer winnowing wheat and then burning off the worthless chaff. That's not an event that Christians should look forward to, nor is an event that we should fear. Jesus said in John 5, 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but is passed out of death into life. So the idea of judgment is a scary thought, but as long as we're in Christ, we pass from that into life. Praise God for that, right? Yeah. And Paul would say in Romans 8 verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So praise God for that. So John's whole ministry was a flaming prediction and testimony concerning the Christ that would take away the sins of the world. He was not the Messiah. John could not save people from sin, but he did point the way to the Messiah. John was a great man. Jesus himself spoke in defense and praise of John when he said in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. You see, John didn't get in the way. John prepared the way. John was mighty, but the coming one was almighty. John was a mere man. Jesus was the Son of Man and much more than any mere man. John was a voice. Jesus was the Word that became flesh. John called for repentance. Jesus called for rebirth. John was a messenger, and Jesus was the Messiah. And Jesus, the Messiah, came to John the Baptist to be baptized by him, as we'll see next week. Now listen, we need to heed John's preaching just as many did in his day, and we all need to repent. Even after we accept Christ as Lord and Savior, we still sin from time to time, and we need to repent. And as I said before, you can't become a Christian without knowing how to repent. And you can't remain a Christian without knowing how to repent. Repentance is essential in coming to Christ for salvation and maintaining that walk with Him. You know, in John 1 verse 37, it says of John's disciples that they heard John and they followed Jesus. They heard John and they followed Jesus. Every preacher worth his salt would love to hate, have that said of them. They heard the preacher, and they followed Jesus. 
Jesus is life. Jesus is everything. And John's entire life, his entire ministry, was to point people to Jesus. Are you doing that? Are you pointing people to Jesus? What's the next step that you need to take today? Do you need to come to faith in Christ, the one that John prepared people for? Then take that next step. Do you need to be immersed into Christ for the remission of sin and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit? Then take that next step. Do you need to identify with a local congregation and find a place of service? We'd love to have you here. Take that next step. Do you need to find an area of ministry to serve in? Take that next step. But in every way, at all times, Try to point people to Jesus like John did.